1: We now rejoin today's message, already in progress. It's because Paul is an apostle that his 13 letters are included in the Bible. Amen. Because the writings of apostles were considered inspired by God. Now, we still have apostles today, though not in that type of sense. Amen. Don't get me wrong. They work and function in the office of the apostle, just like the apostles of old did. And usually they're going to places where most Christians don't want to go. Amen. They're used to establish churches and give foundational doctrinal instruction and correction to these churches as they grow in the things related to God. And then he also says a teacher of the Gentiles. A teacher is someone who systematically instructs people in the truths of God. I also function in these offices, amen, as far as being a preacher of the gospel and a teacher, amen. I'm not called as an apostle. I don't go to foreign nations and plant churches. But I do function in the office of preacher and teacher and sometimes prophet. And I'm not saying that to brag or anything. I'm just saying what three offices I function in. These three callings describe all that Paul sought to be and do in his ministry. And of these three callings, one was unique to Paul as an apostle. And another only applies to some Christians today, which is teacher. And another applies to all Christians, that of being a herald or a preacher. Oh, wait a minute now there, Pastor Bob. I'm not called to be a preacher. Yes, you are. You may not be called to be a pastor, but you are called to be a preacher. There is a difference. A lot of people today confuse those two as being the same thing, pastor and preacher, but they are two separate things. A pastor is the, the one over a flock. We're using that example about being in the body of Christ. Being, if you're a finger, you need to be attached to a hand. That hand is a local assembly, of like-believing believers, you know, the fingers, they come together on the hand. That hand symbolizes the church. The fingers have a job to do that the palm of the hand can. You cannot pick something up with the palm of your hand. You need the fingers to do it. The fingers cannot give people high-fives as congratulations. though Only the palm can do that. But when the fingers are connected to the palm, twice as much gets done. Amen. Because they're in partnership together. The church that you belong to, and I pray you belong to a church, allows you to come together with like-minded believers, getting inspired to go out and do more work for God than you can do on your own. Amen. Think about that. But so often today, especially in the American church, the fingers just come together where the hand, palm and hand should be attached and they just get, uh, you know, their fingernails cleaned up and, uh, that's it. And they go back home. They're still individual fingers going about whatever it is they do. No inspiration to be connected to each other. No inspiration to do more work for God than they can do on their own. And that's the problem today in America. Every believer is called to be a preacher of the gospel in some form, some fashion. There are those who are called to go. There are those called to help. And there are those called to send. Those are the ones that sow financially into getting the gospel out. The ones that go are the ones doing the work, doing the preaching. You may not be called to be an evangelist, but you can help an evangelist fulfill his calling. It might be sending out flyers, packing envelopes, uh, stuffing envelopes, uh, putting up flyers, contacting churches to arrange a speaking schedule, whatever the case may be. You are called to help if you're not called to go. If you don't have the time to help, if you're not called to help, then you are called to support that ministry financially so they have the resources to buy the materials, to stuff the envelopes, to pay the postage, to put up the, to print the flyers, to get them into the hands of the people, to take them to the churches. All that costs money. So if you're not called to go and you're not called to help, then you are called to pay for it all glory to God but every person that's part of being a preacher amen. David when he took his people you know they were off fighting this battle and and the enemy came and destroyed their town and took all the women and children and all the livestock and were' going back to their home. David took the men and pursued them on a basically a forced march. Some of the people were getting weary and were unable to go. He told them, "Well, you stay on this side of the river. Guard our provisions, guard the stuff we got." And they dropped their rucksacks, basically, and continued, uh, you know, with uh, their mission of tracking these people down. Fought the battle, captured every, you know, killed off the enemy, captured everything back, took it all back, didn't lose anything. When they came back, some people said, "You know, since they didn't go with us to fight, you know, we'll give back their wives and children, but that's it." And David said, "No." No, is every those that stayed behind with the stuff get the same reward as those that went. And that spiritual principle is still in force today as partnership. Amen? That if you are unable to go, if you support those that do go, you get an equal share in the reward as those that went. Glory to God. Amen. That's the good news that I have for you today in partnership. Your reward is an equal share to those who are going and doing the preaching. Amen. That's what the New Testament means when it calls us to be a witness to the good news of Jesus. As a matter of fact, back in verse 8 of this same chapter, chapter 1. Paul wrote that we should not be ashamed to testify about the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what being a herald or being a preacher of good news is all about. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Share Jesus. Be excited that you want everybody to know the same Jesus you know. Amen? So here we find the first way God trusts us. And evangelism and outreach. God trusts us to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. Amen. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been subpoenaed to give your testimony. Amen. Over in Acts chapter 10. I preached sermon after sermon on this. 10 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him, and we are witnesses of all things which he did. We are called to be witnesses. Amen. You have been subpoenaed by Jesus Christ himself to give your testimony. Now, he may not be calling you as an expert witness. Who has all the answers and can tell the theological, hermeneutical, and you know, basis of each word in the scripture? You may not be called to do that, but you are simply called to tell what you do know. You may be called to be a witness in a murder trial. You did not see the person actually commit the murder, you cannot identify who the murderer was. But you are called to testify that you see a blue uh, four-door sedan with license plate 123 ABC driving recklessly down the road at a high rate of speed at 10 minutes after 12 on uh, such as such a day while you are out letting your dog do its business in the yard. That's the only thing you know. You don't know anything, you you don't know who committed the murder, how it happened, you don't know who the person was. You've seen that car. That's all you're called to be a, a witness to. If you start adding things to it that you don't know, the prosecution will soon have your words all twisted up that your testimony will become invalid in the eyes of the jury. Amen? You are only called to testify to those things you actually know. I'm sure the prosecution will ask, did you see the driver? And if you said, yeah, it's him, you'd be lying. The honest answer is no. i seen the blue car with that license plate number at this point in time at night driving down the road. Why did it draw your attention? Because it was driving at a high rate of speed. That's all you know. That's all it takes. Because now that person has received your testimony that this is what Jesus has done for me. He receives that testimony. That is a seed planted into his heart. Now God can send the next witness to that person and build upon the testimony that you gave. When I was in Bible school... They said, uh, one study indicated, it takes something like 47 times for someone to hear the gospel before, on average, before they make the decision to receive Jesus as their Savior. That's 47, on average, 47 witnesses that have to testify in the court of that person's mind before they can make the decision that Jesus bore my sins on that cross, that I am guilty of his death and to ask for forgiveness. You don't know if you're witness number one, witness number eight, witness number 42, or you could be witness number 47 and that person asks you, how do I get saved? And you have the honor of leading him in salvation. You don't know where you're at on that timeline for that person. So you are not called to give testimony to things you don't know about. If he asks you a question and you don't know, the honest answer is, I don't know. But I know we can call my pastor and find out. Amen. Only give testimony to what you know about. You have been subpoenaed to verbally tell people around you how Jesus has changed your life. How Jesus' death on the cross Brought you forgiveness of sins. How Jesus' resurrection from the dead has given you hope and eternal life. Far too often, we're like a teenager who takes a phone message for the parent. How many times have you called a friend on the phone and their teenage son or daughter answers? And even as you're leaving your message, you know in your heart that your friend's never going to hear the message. The kid just doesn't, he doesn't mean to be flaky. But as soon as they hang up, usually they totally forget the message you left. Because they're too preoccupied with other things. I'm speaking from experience there with my grandkids. Amen. But God trusts us. He trusts us to relay his message. Amen. In verse 12, Paul admits that it's because of his calling he's suffering hardship. When Paul wrote this letter, he was in a Roman prison cell. And shortly after writing this letter, the Roman government would execute Paul for living as a preacher, apostle, and teacher of the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ was not always a popular message, especially in the Roman day in which Paul lived. To the Romans, the good news was a threat because it undermined the worship of the Roman emperor as God. The early Christians claimed that there was only one true Lord and it was wrong for them to call Caesar Lord. Well, refusing to call the emperor Lord was tantamount to treason in the eyes of the Romans. To many of the Jewish people, the good news was far too radical because it suggested that non-Jewish people could become part of God's people just by simply believing the good news. There were no acts that they had to complete. They didn't have to get circumcised. They didn't have to go to the temple to offer their sacrifices. So the Jewish people opposed the Christian message because they felt like it undermined their status as God's special people. I mean, if you didn't require circumcision, Sabbath keeping, and dietary laws, the Jewish people of the first century were afraid anyone could become part of God's people. And it was true. Anyone can become part of God's people. To the Greeks, the good news was controversial because it claimed that Jesus rose from the grave. Greek philosophers and thinkers found this idea absurd because of their belief that the physical body was a prison for the soul. They felt that the entire idea of resurrection was ludicrous and laughable. Yet, despite these objections from Romans and from Jewish people and from Greeks, Paul never backed down. He was not ashamed of... Of what he believed is the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's the second way God trusts us. God wants us to be unashamed of the good news. Even if it means we have to suffer for it. And that's something you do not see today in America very often. The pastors and preachers and ministries have backed off. Because it's become unpopular To stand on the word of God and speak against gay rights, gay marriage, abortions. has become an unpopular political thing to say anything against these topics. In Paul's day, he refused to back down. Imagine if Paul had been ashamed when he suffered for his message. Imagine if he compromised with the Romans and did call the emperor Lord as well as Jesus. Imagine if he compromised with the other Jewish people and insisted that people had to become Jewish as well as Christian to be part of God's people. Imagine if he compromised with the Greeks and just left out the part about the resurrection from his message. Paul wouldn't have been sitting in a Roman prison cell but he would have violated God's trust. There are times when we will suffer because of our unbelief, or I should say our belief in the good news of Jesus. We will suffer at times because of what we believe. It happens, Christian high school students will who's given a lower grade because he's vocal about his faith in class. See it on the news all the time. It happens to the Christian wife married to a non-Christian husband. She's ridiculed and berated for wasting time going to church. And of course, outside of our borders, followers of Jesus suffer much worse than this for their commitment to the good news of Christ. There are testimony after testimony of, of Muslims who convert to, to Christianity who are then killed because they refuse to recant their Christianity. There's families that disown sons and daughters because they have converted to Christianity. If we really believe the good news of Jesus is true, God trusts us not to be ashamed of it. Amen? Let's look again at verse 13 and 14. Timothy is commanded to keep Paul's teaching as the standard Of what sound teaching is. In other words, Paul's teaching about the good news of Jesus Christ is the standard by which to judge all other teachings. Paul's teaching is like a ruler that Timothy can use to measure other messages. To see if they measure up to the truth. Paul could say this because he was an apostle. Glory to God. Yet, Timothy must hold on to this standard with faith and with love. In other words, how Timothy holds on to the standard is just as important as holding on to it. Faith sums up the Christian's lifestyle towards God, a lifestyle of trust in God. What proof do you have Jesus rose from the dead? What proof do you have Jesus died on the cross? It's in the Bible. That's the only proof you have. God says, hold on to that proof. If you don't believe what's written in the Bible, then you don't believe Jesus actually bore your sins, died for you, and that God raised him from the dead. Amen? I believe it was Romans chapter 2. Paul speaks out against the homosexual lifestyle, calling it an abomination. But if you don't believe that, then you believe that God's word is a lie in that section. And if God lies once, he cannot be trusted. Every word in the Bible must be true. If one word, one promise is a lie, one statement is a lie, then you can throw the whole book away and your faith is useless. That's the type of faith you have to have in the word of God. Amen? Far too many people hold on to the standard without faith and without love. And as a result, they become very judgmental, angry, and obnoxious people as well. They think they're suffering for their message, but in reality, they are experiencing the consequences Of not walking in faith and love. Well, Brother Bob, you just contradicted yourself. You said we're supposed to stand against the homosexuals. Yes, we are. In faith and in love. It's not up to you to convince anyone of what's right or what's wrong. You establish the word of God. The word says this. And they say, well, I say this. And I say, I choose God, not you. And that's how you show them they're wrong. In verse 14, Timothy's told to guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to him. Amen? Clearly this refers to the content of the message, the claims contained within the good news. The good news of Jesus is like a treasure that has been handed over to Timothy for safekeeping. One day when Christ comes again, God will ask Timothy to give an account for how he has protected this treasure, whether he's kept it close to his heart or whether he's lost it. So Timothy is to guard this message with his heart. Yet he can only do this by relying on the Holy Spirit, who lives inside of Timothy, as well as Paul, and who also lives inside you and each and every believer and follower of Jesus Christ. Amen. So here we find the third way that God trusts us. He trusts us to preserve the integrity of the good news. The Bible gives us incredible freedom to be creative in how we communicate God's message. That's the reason for this internet broadcast. In Paul's day, he had no idea that I could speak from where I'm at right now, Baltimore, Maryland, and speak into 182 different countries all over the face of this earth simultaneously. Amen. Paul couldn't fathom that. He couldn't understand a radio broadcast. He couldn't understand television. He couldn't understand mass media and the printed word. Every person having their own copy of the Bible. He couldn't comprehend that. There are things that are going to be taking place in our future. We can't comprehend how God's going to get the word out. All we can do is protect the treasure he has given us now. Amen. Be creative. Some people put posters. Some people use tracks. Some people use uh, theatrical presentations and, you know, dance recitals and things like that. Be creative in how you communicate God's message. But the Bible consistently warns us do not change the content of the message. There's a couple of Bible production companies, Wycliffe is one of them, that has changed the content of the message to appease Muslims. They took out that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died and was raised from the dead. They took that out of the Bible and replaced it with some other trash that doesn't have the same meaning. They will answer to God for that. They lost the treasure of the gospel god trusts us to preserve the integrity of his good news he's entrusted it to us to guard it amen some people compromise the integrity of this message by adding other things to it and you can see churches doing this all the time when they get excited and obsessed about other things so much that they stand for that other thing as much or more than they stand for the good news of christ It can happen with politics, on the right or the left. It can happen with Bible prophecy. It can happen with worship styles. You see that a lot today. Or a host of other issues that churches can get distracted over. Whenever we add anything to the good news of Christ, we dilute the integrity of God's message. And that violates God's trust. Amen? Other times, people compromise the integrity of the message by taking things away from the word. I just went over the the Bible translators that have done this. Some churches refuse to talk about things like sin and hell because they're afraid of offending other people. Some churches preach people and their potential instead of Christ and his cross. That dilutes the integrity of the message and violates God's trust that he's given to us. God gives us incredible flexibility in how we share his message. But he trusts us to preserve the integrity of his message. Amen? So how we trust God. Let's look at that. Outreach and evangelism does not depend totally on us. As we started in the beginning, stated in the beginning, it's a partnership with God. Where God trusts us with certain things and we trust God with certain things.
0: Until Until next time, when we gather together around the Word of God, be blessed. And remember, we serve an awesome God.